Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Fish Nerds. It's a celebration of fish, fishing, and eating fish that is always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Liam Geary of Backwoods Graphics, and here are the nerds. Welcome to the Fish Nerds. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerds of the Fish Nerds Podcast. And I am Rich Collins. I am the fly fishing correspondent of the Fish Nerds. Yeah, and you're going to hear, this is a noisy podcast today, and it's not Rich's fault. I, I just heard a monkey, I swear. I, I know. We're in a tropical area um, here in Boxborough, Massachusetts. Boxborough, and I was telling my daughter, she asked me what Boxborough was, and I said this was the place that foxes were invented. <laughs> of course. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but anyway, we're at Boxborough with the New England Fishing and Outdoor Expo. And there is a swimming pool with fountains right behind us, which I didn't realize was a pool. Um, they've also got a, a hog tank full of bass here and a pool full of trout. And it's like, it's, yeah, it's Foxborough's really getting out there. It's, it's super cool. We've, uh, and we've seen all kinds of cool exhibitors and talked to cool people. A guy just now talked to us for 20 minutes about fishing in the Connecticut River from a jet boat all winter. He breaks the ice with his plow truck, but then launches his boat. This guy. This guy was badass, and I hope he does look at look us up because he had pictures of just doing crazy things to get his boat into the ice water and then fishing through it from a boat. I mean, the walleye he was catching, 18, Everything. 20, catfish. 20 just giant catfish, and he seemed to be, and even winter holdover striped bass. Yeah, which really got me. Northern pike. He had the whole the whole spectrum, and it's going from this winter. I think we live in the wrong place. I know. So. Yeah, anybody that knows where the fish are all the time, if it's Massachusetts, hey, we're not far. We'll we're go, there. We'll go there. We're there. So this show is kind of all over the place. I've got some cut-up material that I've been saving and I want to use up this weekend. So while Rich is here, we're going to kind of talk about what's happening in the in this week's show. So, all right, hey, and uh, hey, you're a fly fishing guy, right? Yeah, yeah, I used to be. Now I'm converting, I think. i got all these other species to catch that are meatier and bigger. Oh, it's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. But, hey, Michael Frank from uh, Flanks... Flanks... <laughs> From Frank's Fly Arts in South Carolina, he's a fishing guide, uh, has produced a new segment for us called called <laughs> The Guide's Corner. Michael Flank's my, Guide Corner. I, I used to say, uh, yeah, anyway. So anyway, here's, here's, here's Michael. Hello, fellow nerds, and welcome to the Fish Nerds Guide Corner. This segment I'm calling Guide Supplies Include Flies. To tie or not to tie? This is the question many fly fishers ask themselves, especially early on in their fly fishing career. I started tying about a year after I learned to fly fish, investing $75 in my first vise, and I've never looked back. I enjoy tying flies and like many fly tires, take pride in catching fish on flies I've tied myself and see fly tying as the flip side of the fly fishing coin. This is a good thing since, as a guide, there is no question where your flies are coming from. Of course, by the time they've decided to become a guide, a fly fisher will already have been tying his or her own flies for years and will have specific go-to fly patterns in their boxes for different species, water conditions, and seasons. 
When I first started guiding, I had the bright idea to offer a free fly box looted with two dozen flies to each client who fished with me. The flies represented a smorgasbord of fish treats from a tiny size 18 midge larva that would interest trout, all the way up to a one-aught clouser minnow that could tempt smallmouth and striped bass. Clients would use these flies on the trip, and the box and any flies remaining in it went home with them so they could use them on their own after the trip. I mentioned this to my friend Kent Edmonds, whose guide service, Flyfish GA, had been in operation for many years down on the Flint River in Georgia. He asked how many trips I thought I would have that season, and how many flies that meant I would have to tie. I told him I was going to shoot for tying four dozen of each pattern included in the box. Okay, so let's do the math. 24 times 48 equals 1,152 flies I would have to tie. Kent seemed skeptical over the phone and maybe a little concerned for my welfare. He asked how long it would take to tie all of those flies. How long per fly? What flies are you tying? You're tying spun deer hair. Those are a lot of work. He also asked if I had figured my time at the tying bench into my guide rate and the hourly rate I thought I would make for the work I was doing. I told him I hadn't and that I liked tying flies anyway. The idea was to get beginners started on the right foot giving them flies to get them started once they were on the river on their own. While I don't think I tied all of the 1,152 flies I planned to that season, I'm sure I did close to a thousand. My hands didn't thank me, but the clients did, and I'm sure there are as many souvenir fly boxes in display cases or forgotten in corners of garages as ended up in budding fly fishermen's vests. Long story short, I found that I didn't have to worry about tying that many flies for my first season, and that was the only season I offered that deal. If you're looking to learn a body of water, guided trips can help you do that. A good guide is a teacher, and when it comes to fly fishing, there's a lot to learn. Knowing the fly patterns to use is indispensable information, and a good guide will share those with you as well as teaching you where, how, and when to fish them successfully. They'll probably also share information about how the flies are made and any history or background information about them. And it's time for Stump the Fish Nerd. I love this segment. Now this is cool. Any fishy question you have, whether it's about fish, fishing, eating fish, biology, cooking fish, whatever, you call 607-378-FISH, leave us a voicemail, and we will feature you on the show. And uh, this is really great. Uh, this actually came verbally from from a newspaper reporter, um, from Damon, from the Conway Daily Sun. You met the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We fished. Yeah, we, we fished. fished with him. He was not very good at it. Um, <laughs> and and he asked the question, why in New Hampshire... Throw him under the bus. There's a funny rule. In New Hampshire, you're not allowed to keep salmon you catch through the ice. In fact, you're not even allowed to take them out of the water. You're supposed to cut the line without removing the fish from the water. When right? you see the silver, you cut the line, you and cut. you can get a ticket if that head comes out of the water, I guess, through the ice. Yes, and so he asked the question, why is that? His dad told him it's because if you take a salmonid out of the water, their eyes freeze immediately, faster than any other fish, Those especially Atlantic salmon. Which, um, who knows, because we can't take them out of the ice to find out. Wait, but, but the question I would have is, is I catch lots of other salmonids through the ice, right? Right. Rainbow trout, brook trout, never a brown. This is my winter job. I have winter brown. This is my next goal. Um, but we catch them, take a photo, and let them go. Are with, we with frozen eyes? Are we releasing know. blind fish? 
Are there a bunch of fish under the ice with um, seeing eye dogfish to help them get this, this would explain Silver Lake. It would explain all these blind... <laughs> all the blind lake trout swimming around aimlessly, just bumping into lures again. Uh, that's why you need noise, noisy lures, right? Oh, rattlers. Yeah. So... So that's the question we're going to answer. Yeah. So why do you why do you in New Hampshire only? Because I believe that's the only state you can't bring your um, salmon through the ice into yeah, the now, air. Yeah. Now in Maine, you can catch salmon off the ice. And you can just munch on them right on the ice. Delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make, make your sashimi. So anyway, uh, Doc Martin called in with what I think is the answer to this question. Proof. Proof. Positive. Well, hello everybody. This is Doc Martin here with you today. And it looks like we got a few questions from some of our listeners. So I wanted to go over a couple of those with you guys. And um, I'm not sure if this is a question or, or a statement or, you know, is it, is it true, myth or fact? Um, okay, so apparently a local newspaper uh, called Clay and asked if landlocked salmon could not be ice fished for because their eyes freeze fast. So, myth or fact. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so this is something new to me. I had never, ever heard this before, but I also live in Kansas, so I don't have a lot of comparison with saltwater versus freshwater salmon. So um, my my initial instinct is to say, you know, I wouldn't think so just based on phenotypic plasticity or even genetic differences between populations of salmon. Like, yes, they exist, but would that be enough to make a difference in their eyes? Well, I, I wanted to say no, but then I thought... Well, it turns out that I also love chemistry and physics. And if we think of the main difference between freshwater and saltwater, well, salt, haha, right? Um, and this is based on just kind of my thoughts. So take this answer with a grain of salt, haha. Um, so there are differences uh, in landlocked and non-landlocked uh, salmonid populations, right? But I would venture to guess that it has to do with this property of water. So salt, uh, if you add salt to fresh water, you're going to decrease the temperature at which water freezes. So um, we know that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius. Um, so if you have no salinity of pure fresh water uh, and you're at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that water is is frozen. That is ice water now, right? It's ice. But if you took the that same water and then you added salt, still at 32 degrees, it will be water. It will be liquid. So if you take a salmon out of salt water at freezing 32, it actually won't be at freezing because of the salt concentration in the water. But if you would take a salmon out of fresh water at 32, it actually would be freezing. So I'm wondering um, if that salt concentration is actually protecting their eyes. Um, I, I don't know this for sure. Um, 
so in in our eyes, human eyes and, and fish eyes, kind of at the front-ish, there's uh, an, an aqueous humor near the surface layer, which is mostly water. Um, my uh, my guess is possibly in freshwater salmonids that would be ref- that would that aqueous humor would reflect the salinity in freshwater and in marine salmonids that aqueous humor would reflect the salinity of marine environments so there you go i think maybe that could just be the reason that salmonid eyes freeze faster if they come out of fresh water landlocked populations um and if there's any if there's any anecdotal evidence, I would really like to see it. Um, I did I haven't found any explicit studies looking at this in my research. So that does not mean that they are not out there. So if you find one of those, I would love you guys to send it to the fish nerds. I think this is uh, a fantastic question. That you know it it didn't make a lot of sense at first until you kind of started thinking outside the box and maybe not necessarily what's going on with the the fish itself, but the environment that the fish is in. Um. Well, that's all that I have for you guys today. Uh, as always, I am so happy to answer your questions. And I'm glad that you guys have questions to ask because there's always more to learn. And have a wonderful day. Thanks. And then since we're at the New England Fishing Outdoor Expo, New Hampshire fishing game biologist Scott Decker is here. Now, Scott actually works with the salmon um work in New Hampshire. Yep, I've done brook trout stuff with him way up north and some of the small streams. He knows his fish. He's been here a while. So I pose that same question to Scott. Um, I'm hanging out with Scott Decker from the Inland Fisheries Division of New Hampshire Fish and Game. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, glad glad to be here. Yeah. All right, so we came by, first of all, we know each other. We're happy, always been supporters of the Fish and Game. But recently a newspaper reporter called me and said, Clay, I heard that we can't keep salmon through the ice in New Hampshire because their eyeballs freeze. Is that the truth? Now, I want you to tell me, Scott, why can't we keep salmon through the ice? Well, Clay, it's, a, it's kind of a long history here. In New Hampshire, salmon fishing was always a thing for the open water fishermen in the spring. Traditionally, you know, you go out in your small rowboat, small motorboat, canoe years ago, and you trolled a line, a fly rod, and it was pretty much geared to open water fishing and since the resource is actually somewhat limited in new hampshire our salmon resource you know we don't have very many lakes that have them unlike our neighbor the state of maine um they have they have a lot of salmon water and they allow ice fishing through the ice um but we don't and it's just it's just kind of that open water mentality and and the lack of you know availability and it would be too much ice pressure on the on the salmon population if we open the uh a winter take you know a winter ice fishing season so that's pretty much the main couple of reasons there just to protect it for the rest of the season now so there's no truth to eyeballs freezing well that's that that could be true for a number of (laughs) been how long they're held out of the water but uh yeah i mean you you can accidentally hook salmon through the ice oh yeah it happens all the time and so what we recommend is to not even bring that fish out of the water at all. That's not a recommendation. That's the law. Um, technically, y- yeah, you can't really, yeah. You, you're supposed to cut the line, and, you know, as soon as you can tell what it is. 
but that's the thing. A lot of folks, you know, now that we have rainbow trout in a lot of our bigger lakes that have the salmon, it's sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what it is until you get it, you know, pretty close. And and if you don't do a lot of fishing, yeah, I mean, I imagine I think a lot of those salmon come up and are held above <laughs> out of the water, you know, for a little while. I'm sure it happens all the time, and people aren't good at recognizing fish. Even when even people who are good at fishing get it wrong sometimes. Cool. So that's Scott Decker from the Inland Fisheries Division of New Hampshire Fish and. <laughs> well, there was a there was an old time here, and I'm sorry I don't know his name that gave a speech that said that um, back in the day on Lake Winnipesaukee, big lake here in New Hampshire, that one of the uh, game wardens trained a dog to sniff out salmon that the guys in the shacks would bury in the snows because they weren't supposed to keep it. Salmon so, dogs, salmon sniffing dog. Yeah, he had a, an old story. So I wonder if it was a poaching thing, and that's you know I I don't know how that fish got in the snow, but um, I don't think it's about eyeballs. I, 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 I find it highly questionable. Not that eyeballs can't freeze. I think um, I think ours froze out there earlier in this year one time. Our own personal yes, lives, yeah, yes. along with our recording equipment and everything <laughs> else. So, so yeah, I, I doubt it. But, uh, you know, Doc Martin says it's possible for eyes to freeze. Um, but I, I've seen enough fish catch and release out in the lake, and I have not seen a lot of eyes freeze immediately. Don't they blink a lot? <laughs> don't they have eyelashes that yeah. are cute so, um, and I think I asked Doc, Doc Martin about um, cold blooded like everybody thinks the temperature of the water is the temperature of the fish which is kind of true but not the way I always thought like it's 32 degrees and the fish is 32 it's and not quite it, like and that. what did she say to that she said eh, sort of they adapt to the, the temperature but I think she said that does not mean they are the temperature of the surrounding air yeah but, and there are some fish that are they're not well they're not warm blooded their blood is actually warm Right, so if you get into the bigger tuna fish and that sort of thing, they're actually the temperature of their meat, their blood, is warmer than the surrounding temperature because this is why we're fishing. The, the muscle movement actually heats the blood, huh. and they regulate their body temperature for the movement. But it's not like us where our body regulates. You know, it's we're not mammal-like, but they're still they're still fish. Hmm. But yeah, they don't match their environment, and they still don't feel pain, so we can fish for them. Yay! Um, now the animals are now we're in trouble. <laughs> Now we're in trouble. Which so, brings us to... Um, I've got another question from a different fan. Hello, listeners. My name's Natasha Anderson, and I attend UC Berkeley. Um, I work with James and Josh at the East Bay Regional Parks, and we received a letter from a child asking about what does fish's blood look like. Um, I was also curious why you when you eat raw fish, how come it doesn't bleed? Um, thank you so much, and looking forward to hearing back from you. Bye. She wants to know what fish blood looks like, which is a fantastic question and something that, you know, maybe a lot of people don't really think about. Um, so in general, fish have red blood that would look to us, to the human eye, um, pretty similar to what our blood looks like. Um, it's red in color, about the same consistency, um, but where it gets interesting is finding out where red blood cells come from and what they look like under a microscope. Uh, in general, um, blood is made mostly of um, red blood cells and plasma. And there's also a few things, white blood cells, platelets, and some other things dissolved in our blood. And that's pretty much the same for most fish and humans. And, and other organisms. Um, for people, 
our red blood cells are produced in our bone marrow and after about 120 days they are destroyed in our spleen. Um, the purpose of our red blood cells in general for most animals is to carry oxygen and collect carbon dioxide using hemoglobin. Uh, and hemoglobin is just an, an iron-rich molecule that is really good at transporting oxygen and carbon dioxide. And that's actually that iron is what gives blood its red color. Um, about every second, a human adult produces about 2.4 million red blood cells every second. So how many of you been producing while you've just been listening to me talk about it? <laughs> um, interestingly, if we look uh, at this under a microscope, the red blood cells of humans and most mammals have nuclei during the early phases, but they will get rid of them during development and as they actually mature. So if you were to prick your finger and make a slide and look at your blood, um, you would see that it does not have a nucleus. And this is in order to provide more space for that important hemoglobin molecule for the transport of gases. Um, so the difference here is that fish, fish blood uh, retains the nuclei in their cells. Um, and most other non-mammals actually do retain their nuclei. Um, Fish blood cells also don't come from the bone marrow. So in sharks and rays, which are cartilaginous fishes, they can be created in three different organs. Um, the spleen, the epigonal organ, uh, which is around the gonads, and the Leydig organ, which is found near the, the throat, uh, near the esophagus. However, in teleost fish, so that's going to be your, your bony fishes, um, the blood cells are normally only produced in the spleen and the kidneys. Um, so to, to summarize here, what's, what does fish blood look like? For the most part, it's going to look like your blood if you were to just look at it with your eyes. But it doesn't come from the same place. And if you put it under a microscope, your fish blood will have nuclei, which is pretty cool. And it's fun to look at. Um, and of course, it wouldn't be fun if there wasn't some fish with a crazy exception to this rule, right? Well, say hello to the ice fish. Um, and actually, for those of us that have been, for those of you that have been listening to this podcast for a while, um, you've heard me talk about the ice fish before. So they are a very unique exception. Um, they're one of the only known vertebrates without red blood cells. So it's the crocodile ice fish. They live in very oxygen rich cold water and they transport oxygen freely dissolved in their blood. So they don't use hemoglobin. So it, there's no red blood cells. Um, but if you did a genetic analysis, you can see that there are still remnants of the hemoglobin genes. So at some point way back when their ancestors were around, um, they, they could have had red blood cells, but currently now these guys evolved to not have them, which is pretty cool. Also, they live where it's really, really cold. Um, and the second question uh, from the same person was, um, why do we eat raw fish? Um, is it dangerous? And things like that. Um, so, of course, any food has, well, most foods have the potential to be dangerous. But typically, people don't want to... Uh, eat raw fish because they're afraid of things like 
parasites and things like that. Um, tapeworms are a really big one that you will hear about occasionally in the news. Um, but also bacteria can develop in non-fresh fish and they can produce, uh, histamine enzymes and that can result in some poisoning, uh, problems. Um, and some tropical fish also contain a natural toxin. So you just, you want to be careful, but you, if you like sushi and you like eating raw fish, you're going to a restaurant that hopefully is not questionable, um, you typically don't really need to worry because these restaurants um, take certain steps in handling and preparing their fish. So they freeze it at certain temperatures for a certain number of days um, and they do different processes and different temperatures to make sure that all the parasites or potential parasites are going to be killed. Right. Um, so there's a few exceptions um, in general. Oh shoot, I lost my place. This is really annoying. Sorry, Clay. Give me give me some time here. Um, oh, computer, no. Okay, so um, one other thing that you can hear is that. Some fish are poisonous. This typically is from the puffer fish, right? So the, the fugu, that's the poisonous puffer fish. Um, and master sh fugu chefs um, know how to prepare that fish. Um, they have to go through lots and lots of training, so they're very, very skilled. Um, so don't you don't do it yourself. Don't try this at home. Make sure you're going to someone that really knows what they're doing. But there are people every year that are trying to make fugu by themselves and it turns out very bad for them uh, usually irreversible so you just want to be careful um, and some meats have a much greater risk so fish tends to be at the lower end a raw chicken um, has a lot greater risk so there's there's reasons you don't have you know raw chicken sushi. Um, if any of your friends try to give you that, say no. <laughs> um, so, you know, no food is completely without risk, but as long as you're going to a, a restaurant or someone that's properly trained, they know how to handle the raw food. So these bacteria or toxins uh, um, are not going to make people sick. So um, if you do eat sushi at a restaurant and you can't finish it all, I've had this problem before. There's so much, so good, but you just can't finish it. You should not let it sit in your fridge for more than 24 hours. After 24 hours, throw it out. It is no good anymore. Um, with that, also there can be just basic contaminants in fish. So uh, we hear about mercury a lot. Um, with that, you should look uh, available online. There's information on guidelines for eating certain types of fish. Uh, in general, your long-lived larger fish will always have higher bioaccumulation of these dangerous toxins. Um, so with that in mind, you know, maybe choose your sardines over your sturgeon. <laughs> so uh, I hope that answers your questions. And of course, if you have any more, you can always call the fish nerds and leave a message or send them an email. Fishy pet peeves. Whoa. Yeah, this is important. Now, on the show last week, we were visited by 
the inventor of the pocket rod rest who came by today to the expo and talked to me pocket again. Pocket rod rest. Yeah, and it's not as fun as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was confused by it because I'm like, well, I like holding my rod, but this is for when you catch a fish and you don't want to stash your rod on yeah, the side of it. you just stick it in your pocket, rest your rod, tie your knot, release yeah. your fish, let it go. Because I, I tend to throw mine in the river and hope that the current doesn't pick it up. And I actually do that too. <laughs> I always do because it's, it's safer than letting it slide off a rock if it's stuck in the, the, the but bottom. That could but solve that problem for you. Could. See, I'll give you one of these if you want. So what is your biggest fishing pet peeve? Well, I actually called in um, one. Oh, then I'll just play it. And you can just play it, or we could just talk about it. But um, and I have I have lots more I can come up with. I'm trying not to more. try not to offend anybody, especially as the fly fishing guy that catches small fish. Um, hey there, this is Rich Collins. I have a pet peeve, and it's not a big one um, because it's a small one. I get a lot of grief from people in real life on Facebook for catching small fish, um, not necessarily micro fish, but you know, small, beautiful, wild trout, for example. And it gets tiring because they are precious, um, for lack of a better word. So I'd like to tell all those meat-chucking, big fish-catching monsters out there that little fish matter. Size doesn't matter. Thanks. Hey, fish nerds. This is David Redden from Maryland. I was calling because you mentioned you wanted to hear about people's rants and things like that. Your pet peeves. My biggest pet peeve is people leaving stuff hanging from trees and not trying to get it themselves, or finding stuff on the side of the actual boat launch, finding hooks and fishing line, and everything like that. Pick up your trash, people. Pick up your trash. Thanks. Hey, Clay. It's Jeff Donaldson out here in the Midwest. Hey, fishing pet peeves. Well, I'm a member of a lot of online like Facebook groups, and when I'm in the fly fishing groups, I get super annoyed at the fly fishermen, and it's almost always men, it's never women, who think that fly fishing makes you somehow a superior human being to anyone who fishes any other method. Uh, it drives me nuts. We're just fishing, folks. I enjoy fly fishing. It's great. It's fun. It's challenging. But it does not make me a morally superior person. It does not make me a 12th level aqua wizard because we're fishing. It's for fun. You're supposed to have fun while you fish. If people have fun fishing by using spinning gear, that's great. Awesome. If people have fun soaking night crawlers under a bobber with the Zebco 33, that's awesome. They're having fun. That's great. That's what they should be doing. And the attitude of some fly fishermen, and, and I get it from multiple directions because inside fly fishing, there's a constant debate slash war about what constitutes proper fly fishing. Uh, some people, you know, think if you fish nymphs, oh, you're a you know, that's not fly fishing, and you use a strike indicator? Oh, my gosh, might as well just be soaking worms under a bobber. And because I've taken up Tenkara, oh, good grief, the Tenkara hate you get from some of these guys that are just like, oh, that's stupid, that's, you know, oh, you're just being a hipster, blah, 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 blah. Whatever, it's just fishing. We're having fun. 
I don't think I'm morally superior to anyone because I fish with a 10 car rod. I don't think I'm morally superior to anybody because I fish with a fly rod. I fish with all kinds of things, spinning tackle, bait casting tackle, bait, lures, flies, you name it. I've gigged fish where it's legal. I have dipped them up with a net where it's legal. I like to fish, and that's what it should be about, fun. And when you have these snobby elitist fly fishermen who are all into having their little bro club and looking down on other people, I don't think that's a great way to grow the sport of fly fishing. It kind of puts people off, and I wish they'd cut it out. So that's my two cents on angling pet peeves, and you can tell it drives me crazy. Thanks. Keep up the good work with the podcast. My name is uh, Taylor Miller, and I live over in Newport, New Hampshire. And my biggest fishing pet peeve is when you are ice fishing and somebody gets too close to where you are fishing. Hi, I'm Matt Cazaza from Concord, New Hampshire. And my pet peeve about fishing is when Taylor comes over and checks my trap when he's not supposed to. Hi, Clay. Hey, uh, fellow fish nerds. This is Brian Gilbert from Iowa. And uh, I guess uh, when it comes to other anglers out on the water, I would say 90% of the time, uh, you know, I get along with them. They're uh, they're usually okay. They're pretty respectful. You know, they, uh, they clean up after themselves. Uh, you know, they uh, they don't do anything that's, that's really out of the ordinary or wrong. Um you know, I most of them that I come in contact with are pretty talkative, and uh, you know, we we share stories back and forth. We talk about how the fishing's doing and stuff. But uh, every now and then, uh, you know, there's there's a few uh, few people that kind of get under my skin. You know, uh, I guess I'm talking about the ones that seem to have no problem. You know, leaving their garbage behind. You know, I I don't know how many times I'll uh, go to an area and I'll see beer cans on the ground, uh, fishing line left behind, tackle, uh, hooks, um, you know, cigarette boxes. Uh, that, that really, that really seems to kind of tick me off, you know. Uh, whenever I take out my nieces and nephews fishing, I always try to teach them that, you know, uh, when, when you're out in nature, when you're out fishing and stuff, you know, try to leave it, uh, like it was when you came, you know. Pick up your stuff, clean up your garbage, make sure that you're not leaving anything behind. Uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, when you go and you find stuff laying on the ground because other people are just disrespectful or lazy, you know, leave it better than, than what it was when you came, you know. Yeah, we didn't leave that stuff. Yeah, we weren't the ones that uh, decided to just leave our garbage sprawled about. But, uh, you know, go ahead and, and pick it up and make the environment just a little bit better than than what it was when you got there, you know. Um, the other type of anglers I really can't stand are the ones that seem to think that the rules just don't apply to them. Uh, I'm talking about the, the guys that, you know, keep a lot of fish that are undersized or they, you know, they just keep what they want. And, you know, I've got a favorite pond that I go to that used to be uh, – Used to have pretty good numbers and bass and pretty good size, but a lot of the guys seem to think that because it's 
it's not really a, a main body of water that it's kind of a kind of a private pond that they can that they can uh clean out the, the good sized bass and it kind of ruins it for everybody else. Kinds of beat up on this here internet. You know, and I cry at night sometimes, so that might be a pet peeve. I'm amazed at what a cult phenomenon making fun of you has become. And I was recognized today like a superstar, like, oh my god, are you Rich Collins? I'm like, how do you know? And they like thumb ring, so I got all by your thumb ring. I got, uh, yeah, I got not blame. to mention all the people catching fish and taking their yeah, ring oh, well, off, putting on the thumb and sharing a photo. Yeah, people so that, if you think you can outfish Rich Collins on our Fish Nerds Facebook group, please. Take a picture of your thumb with, with a ring, ring on it and the fish and share it with us and, and uh, we'll be your best friends. And my ring is um, unique. It has a unique marking, so we'll know who is, who's really me and who isn't. But yeah. uh, Either way, it's funny. <laughs> so. <laughs> I've got thousands of pictures of small fish with my thumb ring because that's the only way I can take a picture. If the fish is too big, I can't have two hands by myself to take the picture. So, I, but It's cool, but it's, what it does is, because what I do when, I've, like when I'm bringing my fish, all I do is take my hat off, throw it on the ice, <laughs> yeah. take a photo. I do that year round. Like I just drop my well, hat. That's what around. I should do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, because I like I tried. Like I have on my phone. I've got programs where I can watermark. I can add, but it's, it takes time. Yeah, it takes forever. If in the photo my logo is already there, boom, yep. everyone Same knows. With the thumb ring. So bring one. bring it on. Bring on your competition. I, I'm I'm going after big fish this time around. I'm yeah, done with like this. a walleye. I'm done with this playing around in the beautiful quiet spots. Twenty-seven eye walleye. Yeah, bass. right below the dam where there's twenty-five boats and guys hucking, you know, lead. Jigs and he scary was using things. Jigs, right? Massachusetts. <laughs> he was yeah. using half I know. I'm so afraid to say anything. Uh, I, I, I've learned a long time ago not to. No, I actually haven't learned. I try not to uh, talk too much about like what other people are doing <laughs> wrong, and it's really hard. And the more I get into guiding, the more yeah. I, I, the more hard it becomes. Richard uh, Yvonne said that lead is illegal to possess in Maine now, which I did not know. And I fish in Maine, so like, even to own it. To carry it on your person while you're fishing. I guess like, that way they can keep you from using it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the next state. But. Yeah. So you've been at this expo here walking around? Yeah, I'm just I'm just talking to people. There's Which, a lot of tackle. Yeah. There's a lot of guides. There's a lot of fishing rods. Um, I'm not really interested in having any more tackle. I've got a ton of it. Um, but I like talking to the people, the characters. So. Yeah, there's a lot of them here. Yeah, and there's a lot of good stories and fishing guys. And, you know, they're working, so they're not really, they don't have a lot of time to share. But yeah. you catch them. You catch them when there's nobody at their booth, they'll tell you some great stories. Now, when we first opened today, the first crowd were a bunch of, like, you know, retirees, <laughs> 70, 80-year-olds, right? And I feel good we can make fun of them on this podcast because whenever they walk by the table, they go, what's a fish nerd? I'm like, what's well, a fish nerd? It's a, it's a podcast about fish fishing. What's a fish. podcast? What's a podcast? Well, what? do you Wait. have a smartphone? No. It's what do hippies do. No. Yeah, it's what, it's what it's hippies what do, and that we're trying to make illegal now. My grandson podcast. wants to do that for a job, and I, you know, he's got to lift stuff. My daughter came out as a podcaster last week, and now she wants to get friendly with another podcaster, yep. if you know what I mean. And a tattoo to boot. We do not support that where I come from. Where I come from, podcasters <laughs> don't lie with other podcasters. Podcasters is bastards. That's what they say. Those podcasting bastards. And the next thing you know, you can't get free coffee uh, refills at the McDonald's. Damn it. Podcasters. And that's why Newman's Own is not supporting McDonald's coffee anymore. Because <laughs> of podcasters and their so, dollar coffee. So apparently we have a pet peeve against... <laughs> so, if, if, so, so, so many conversations end with... You don't have the computer? Okay, thank you, sir. <laughs> Can I have a decal? No. Because you don't know what a podcast is. I got AM radio. Yeah, great. 
What station are you on? iTunes. Never heard of it. <laughs> Just try and keep up, man, a little bit. iTunes is not that hard. Is it 108.2? No. I'm on jamming 104. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, so much knowledge in these fishing shows, but it, it is interesting because everybody's trying to sell their newest and latest prod product or products, so it's nice to be a neutral party just walking around talking to them. It, it is an unsponsored party, which by the way, if anyone wants to sponsor the podcast, <laughs> we will welcome your money at any time. Just go to clayfishners.com and I'll call you back right away. Yes, so. uh, that's his job. I'm still going to remain. It's actually not my job. I have a sales lady. I'm gonna just, I would just pass your number on to her. So, I'm the neutral Switzerland. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be that. That's why I have a salesperson. So I can be the guy who just meets and talks to people and somebody else does the sales part for me. Hey there, Fish Nerd Nation. This is your effing librarian out here in the effing Midwest, Jeff Donaldson. And you know what I love? I love fishing the news. And I've got a, a very special local fish in the news here from Missouri. So, from the Columbia, Missourian, Dateline, January 19th, 2017. Missouri Offensive Line Fish Symbolize Brotherhood Family by Ann Rogers. Columbia. The Missouri Offensive Lineman did not like to call their fish Boneyard a pet. Instead, he was treated like a brother. So the players took it hard when lineman Kevin Pendleton and Tyler Howell found Boneyard dead in his fishbowl Wednesday morning in the offensive line room at the Missouri athletic training complex. Howell was so shocked that he ran out of the room. It was like any morning and they walked in and saw him, lineman Alec Ablin said. He didn't float. He kind of sunk to the bottom next to the rip sign, which is ironic. Ablin, Pendleton, and Paul Adams purchased Boneyard in September to get on the video board at Memorial Stadium. Soon the entire offensive line had developed a bond with Boneyard. The lineman at first neglected to take care of Boneyard and the water in the bowl turned burnky. But he was a fighter and Abbold said all the linemen made sure he was healthy. He stayed in the offensive line room when the offseason started and then went to Redshirt Freshman Center, Jonah Dubinsky's house in Columbia for winter break. When everyone returned, Boneyard looked healthy. His death was unexpected. Everyone took it pretty hard, Pendleton said. It's hard to work out and not see Boneyard in the room when we're done. Adam said everyone will miss the way Boneyard brightened up the room after practices and games. We're at a practice, it's been a long week, and we'd walk in and look to our right and he'd poke his little head out of the skull, and it was so cute, Adam said. Coach Glenn Ellerby would be upset with us at times, but we'd take a breather and talk to Boneyard and he gave the best advice. The players listened. The offensive line was a bright spot in an up-and-down 4-8 season in Barry Odom's first year as head coach. The line was ranked 16th in the country, allowing only 14 sacks. He was always there, good or bad, win or loss, Pendleton said. He was always there flapping his fins. You're going to miss his color. He was a great-looking fish. Boneyard's presence influenced more than just the players. Four-year-old Griffin Ellerby was so upset about Boneyard's death that his father, Offensive line coach Glenn Ellerby took him to Petco on Wednesday to get another fish. He brought home Boneyard 2, whose tank sits in the offensive line room. We think he's going to be great for us, Avalon said. We just wanted to respect a day of mourning for Boneyard 1 yesterday, but we're really excited to have Boneyard 2. So there you have it. A key player for the Missouri Tigers football team is a fish named Boneyard 2.
Oh, and by the way, not mentioned here, but uh, Boneyard was a betta fish, uh, also known as the Siamese fighting fish. And <clears throat> one of the things that you might find out about us here in Missouri is that we like animal totems for our sports teams. The Kansas City Royals had a rally mantis at the end of the season this last baseball season who died and was then replaced with Rally Mantis Jr., who I'm happy to report is now living in a local nature center. So if this is your effing librarian here in the effing Midwest, bringing you the effing fish, <laughs> fish in the news, Missouri edition, signing off. Fish in the news. All right, this is from Slate.com. A shocking electric eel myth confirmed. The way eels leap out of the water to defend themselves is completely crazy. I, uh, okay. At the turn of the 19th century, German naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, Ooh, he's almost scary. a lightning bolt, <laughs> was exploring South America when he hired a group of local fishermen to collect electric eels for him. How much does one get paid? How, there's no electric eels in Germany. <laughs> Humboldt had been experimenting with creating batteries and was eager to find out what he called the living electrical apparatuses. The locals led him to a pool where, according to Humboldt's account, they proceeded to fish for the eels using rather unusual method. Rather than lowering eels with bait, they led some 30 wild horses and mules into the muddy pond filled with electric eels. And once kept, <laughs> and once in, kept the horses from fleeing by yelling, by yelling and wielding long, thin reed canes. Yelling, stay, stay, <laughs> let stay. it shock you. That's that's animal abuse, by the way, which we do not support. It's fish nerds. We are uh, cognizant of animal feelings, uh, except sometimes. Historically worse. speaking, Germany has Germany has done worse than that. Um, I'm just saying. The the resident eels defend themselves against invading equids by swimming to the surface, uh, where they then press themselves against the horses' bodies and release electric jolts. Two horses die within the first few minutes. Once the eels exhaust themselves, the fishermen easily reel in several for Humboldt's research. Since Humboldt published this account in 1807, no one had ever reported seeing this shocking, pun intended, behavior. The eels leaping out of the water in such a fashion, not the inhuman treatment of the wild horses, that is. <laughs> Even Kenneth Catania, MacArthur genius, grant-winning neurobiologist, and modern-day electric eel expert at Vanderbilt University, hadn't given this story a lot of credence. Excuse me. There's a lot of credentials. I know. I, I, someday I'm going to have a whole list. I thought this is a crazy tale from the 1800s that probably totally exaggerated, if not possibly false, he said. That is, until he saw it with his own eyes. He was moving his eels from one tank to another using a metal net. By the way, when I say tanks, you say... I welcome. say don't use a metal net. Why would you use a metal net? Tanks, a metal net with electric eels? Come hey, on now. Uh, well, maybe he was grounded. He noticed that the eels would periodically turn around and change from not wanting to be near the net to explosively attaching it by leap, attacking it by leaping out of the water up the handle. Because he was measuring the electrical output in the aquarium with wires hooked up to a speaker, he could also hear the amount of electric, electric eels releasing from shit. It's like zap, zap, pop, pop. I want to hang out with these guys. Let's throw some fish in the pond. I mean, some horses in the pond and let the fish zap them. What look up speakers. What happens if I spit in it? <laughs> look up a subwoofer. And... <laughs> I don't even know what to tell you. I, he realized that these were near mythical leaps Humboldt had described and published his findings today 
in the proceedings for the National Academy of Science. He called the discovery, discovery serendipitous. I love to be able to say that about something trying to leap out and shock me. So, wow. But yet, no video footage or he never heard of YouTube. It's... They have audio footage. Of course, on the speaker going. <laughs> yeah, so that noise you hear in the background down here, that's electric wheels. <laughs> That is some news. Right. So, uh, chiming in on our Facebook group, Mike Steffen says, it's a fish. Right. Uh, and and he said, but not an eel. Right. Which I didn't know. Wow. Uh, Rich Collins, that's you, says, wait, so an electric eel is a fish, but not an eel. Just like My, <laughs> hashtag mind blown. Electric yep. blown. Why is this an eel? Mike says, they are knife fish. Most of me all are electric. Mike applied for a job to study them and didn't get it. Well... <laughs> Maybe because you're a smart ass. Maybe because they're eels. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Richard, what did you, you said? What did I? Who knows what I said? I said, whoa, Erica, Christine Martin. I have to speak about the knife fish before. Um, or have you spoke about the knife fish before? And she said, probably. Seems like an easy one to target. And now we know they can attack. It's science. Yeah. So anyway, so we can expect soon to hear from Erica, Doc Martin, about this. Um, but, man, we should totally have her on and talk about this. I also should reach out to that fisheries biologist who did the work and see if I can get him on the show because that would be awesome. Yeah, and if you could get him here at the, the, the show here in Boxborough, we can hook up a speaker to the swimming pool over there oh, and get some real audio and yeah. measure the output. You've listened to a couple of fishers when you should have been fishing, fishing or at an expert. Yeah, when you can't fish, sometimes you got to talk about fishing. Yeah. So we would like to thank our families for, for supporting us while you podcast. Go on Fishing Quest and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. Mm. How can they support the podcast? They can go to Patreon. Um, and I, I finally did it. I've been dragging my feet because I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to put the credit card in the machine. Um, but it's wicked easy. So you it's just go to Patreon, sign up. It takes, um, by show, a certain dollar amount that you can contribute, Clay's wise, and then he's asking for smaller amounts per show so it can help fund long term. And uh, yeah, it's it's really easy. Yeah, I mean, what I'm asking for is for people who like our show, think an hour of entertainment's worth a dollar to put a dollar an episode in the hat. So four bucks a month. Although this month it's five. Oh, there's an extra Monday. Man. I know, I'm winning. I'm gonna have to get a job. I'm winning. But anyway, producing a podcast isn't free. Coming to expos isn't free. Uh, and we have to do it. So we need the support and we appreciate all the, all the donors, our newest donor rich Collins, right next to me yeah he's a, he's the best of me yeah anyway we're always happy to have it anyway so uh thanks to the new england fishing and outdoor expo for having us here and i forgot the rest of the closing so that's it we're done yay, yay. <laughs>